0: Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman and part of his five week presentation, Creation in the Old Testament, a series of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled Creation and Wisdom, Part 2. Recorded in October 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman.
1: Okay, on the other hand, at the other extreme, there's dualism and Gnosticism. Dualism is the view that evil does in fact exist, and it's just as powerful as what we would call good. And it is primordial. It's not not something that comes into being. It It is eternal, just like God, if you have a God in this system, is also eternal. Two principles at war with one another and neither of them capable of achieving sort of victory over the other. In such a worldview, the only form of, of uh, liberation, if you will, uh, the only form of ameliorating the condition is to escape the world, to escape the world. And that's what Gnosticism means. It's a form of dualism that regards matter itself, the material the universe as evil and therefore as something to be escaped from. Uh, well, there is indeed evil in the world, and evil is indeed very profound. Both of these views therefore affirm the insufficiency of the world as we have it. But they do so to a degree that it excludes the possibility that there is any real victory over this bad condition. Because if the only way we, we can have victory over it is by, is by o- avoiding it, we, u- we ultimately have to reject the world itself, right? which is what Gnosticism is. Well, of course, we know from the Bible, from the Old Testament, that all of the authors that we've read speak of the creation as good. And because God is more powerful than the presence of evil in the world, there is a possibility of an amelioration, a bettering of things, without having to reject the world. Right? Therefore, the conclusion is not escaping the world as a disembodied spirit in order to harp away on a cloud somewhere, but rather is, it means recreation. God recreates the world uh, with human participation. Right? That's basically the biblical answer to this question. So again, it affirms something to an extreme and denies something else. Finally, deism and materialism. Although they have ancient roots, they have been very, become very popular in the modern world, partly because of the, the great advances of the natural sciences, which have revealed the amazing interconnectedness of internal principles among the various forces of nature and energy that cause most of what we experience. Um, But let's look at these views. Deism is the view that God caused the the world to exist, but that this action was merely inceptive, that it would say it was merely a one-shot deal. He created it, and then he sat back and let it go on its merry way with these natural forces playing uh, out this uh, this drama then so there's no ongoing creative engagement between god and the world this is a very popular view in the modern period because it allows you to have a creator god and yet also have um, a completely self-contained natural universe right, which basically functions on its own Materialism is the view that matter and we would add energy are all that exist and that transformations of matter and energy possess no ultimate cause extrinsic to themselves. In plain English, that means that nothing exists except the material universe and well, wasn't there a Big Bang? Sure, but what was before that? Presumably other transformations of matter and energy. Maybe the universe pops into and out of existence. Maybe we have parallel universes, but, but, the, but, but a materialistic view cannot, and cannot compass any extrinsic cause, any extrinsic cause or purpose behind all of this, it's simply there. It's simply there. It's impossible to imagine it not being there. Both of these views affirm the materiality of the universe. This is all there is. It's not evil, right? And also pay great attention to the, in a sense, the freedom, the internal freedom of the natural forces within the world, including us, Uh, to act without simply being uh, puppeteered by a a puppet master god, right? This is a much more richer view of human freedom and the freedom of existing things from a creator. So there's a truth to that, which the church and the Old Testament authors affirm, but neither can account for why anything exists in the first place, right? Well, the Big Bang uh, came from the implosion of a previous, universe. so where did that one come from? And blah, 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 blah. That's called infinite regress. You can explain nothing by it. So you can't really account for why things are here, and also you can't account satisfactorily for the emergence of the human mind. You can can describe the physical correlates of the emergence of the mind and all that it entails, like conscience and things like that, but you really can't give a credible account of why we even have questions about what we're here for, why we can even think those thoughts. So... Those are the six alternatives to creation. All of them speak a truth, but only one-sidedly. And so I've created this chart here to give you a sense of the doctrine of creation balances four or two axes, as it were, two different tension, tensive ideas. The first is the tension between freedom and determinacy, both our freedom, the freedom of created things, and the fact that we're all sort of constrained by the fact that God created us in a certain order, but also... The imminence and the transcendence of God. God is indeed present to everything, but he's not identical with everything. He transcends everything, just like our minds also transcend the physical universe and can think about it and reflect on it and evaluate it. So it, it avoids pantheism on the one hand, and it, involve, and, it, and it avoids dualism on the other. It also balances world acceptance with world rejection. Right? Evil, the world is evil, therefore we reject the world? No. The world is e- There is evil in the world, but we also embrace the world because it is fundamentally good. Creation balances these two realities just like it balances the realities of freedom and determinacy, both for us and for God. Um, so creation then, you could say, rationally is a, is a superior idea, a superior theory, because it can account for more than any one of these other theories can. It can also unify all those theories, too. It says they all speak a truth. And creation is sort of a meta-theory that contains them all in some sort of balance. Okay, so that's an example of what an argument, a rational argument for creation would be. Let's move now to how the Old Testament authors talked about uh, creation in relationship to wisdom or reason. So let's get some words down, first of all. Hebrew word for wisdom is chokmah. The Greek word for wisdom is sophia. Both of these words are grammatically feminine, and so often in the Old Testament, Hokmah or Sophia is personified as a woman. So it's not just wisdom is that. Wisdom or no, no, wisdom um, uh, makes its way in the world. No, wisdom makes her way in the world because she's a person. So wisdom is personified. It has it, if you even want to call it, and it has personal characteristics to it. How wisdom is related to God, again, reveals how the Old Testament author conceives of the relationship between faith and reason. Wisdom is reason. Our reason given to us by God. The capacity to reason. That's how the Old Testament authors think. Now, most wisdom literature, and actually let's talk about wisdom literature. This is basically the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It is the book of Proverbs, the book of Job, some of the Psalms, the book of Ecclesiastes or Koheleth. The book, uh, the wisdom of Ben Sirah or Sirach. We also used to call him Ecclesiasticus rather confusingly. And finally, the book of wisdom or also the wisdom of Solon. So let's see, that's six. So six basic uh, texts or collection of texts within the Old Testament are grouped together as being about this theme of wisdom. Now, the bulk of most of these texts are practical advice. Again, if creation is about the human vocation, what human beings are and what they're called to be, uh, you can express that dramatically in a creation story. You can express that dramatically in the story of the covenants. But what does it mean in practice? Well, you have the laws, of course, in the Torah. But you can also address this question in a more universal way. Right? The laws of the Torah are for Israel. Right? What about for all humanity, for anyone? What would it mean to live out the human vocation? in a faithful, authentic way? Well, we'd have to think about it. We'd have to use our reason. What do I do in this situation? What do I do in that situation? Most wisdom literature is practical advice on how to do that. And so if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, most of it is a bunch of fortune cookie sayings, right? You know, watch out that you don't, you know, uh, do this, but do that. Uh, and the book, The Wisdom of Ben Sirah, for example, is another beautiful collection of just the the, 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 the lived wisdom of a, of, of, a, of a venerable teacher in Israel named, named Ben Sirah. Then there's Ecclesiastes or Koheleth, a, you know, wonderful advice about how to deal with the uncertainties and the ambiguities of human existence. Um, he's sort of a skeptic. Right? He's a skeptic uh, who says we can know nothing almost, but except what is good, what is good for us to do, which is to live life and to live it well. And he gives some examples of that. Um, The Wisdom Psalms have much to say about that as well. Book of Wisdom, Wisdom of Solomon, has less to say specifically. It's more of a philosophical treatise on wisdom. Anyway, that's what most wisdom literature is about. I'm not going to focus on that, though, tonight. What I want to do is tackle this really interesting question of who Lady Wisdom is and how she relates to creation, because it is in the reflection, the personification of wisdom as a woman that these authors explore The meaning of creation, the ultimate meaning of creation. So here we are at the most profoundest thinking of the Old Testament on what creation is all about. So I'm going to begin with the Book of Proverbs, which is probably the earliest that was written, although this particular section of the Book of Proverbs may have been written very late. Uh, It may have been as late as the 3rd century B.C. uh, because it reflects an engagement with some ideas from Greek philosophy, which Jews had no contact with until then. But in any case... Uh, it begins with the personification. Now, the speaker is a parent speaking to their child, right? a father or a mother speaking to a son or a daughter. That is the, the speaker, the narrator. And so, again, the, by Chapter 8, we've had a plenty of parental advice about, you know, what to do and what not to do. We do this with our kids all the time. But then the parent says, Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding, note capital U, raise her voice? On the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gate in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries out. So notice one thing about Lady Wisdom is that she is rather public about what she has to say. She doesn't, she's not hidden out anywhere. She's not on top of a mountain. You don't have to go up to there to get ten commandments from her. She is right in your midst. She is in the public sphere. She's in the public square. What is her message? To you, O people, I call, she says, and my cry is to all that live. So she addresses all humanity, not just Jews, not just Israel, not just Christians, not just theists. She addresses all humanity. O simple ones, learn prudence, acquire intelligence, you who lack it. So we all have intelligence, but we need to develop it, right? So she then goes on to all the great things she's going to say. She says, everything I say is basically without error. I am inerrant in what I tell you, so you can trust me. I'll sort of skip through some of these things. She then goes on to speak of her riches, that what I have to tell you is more valuable than all wealth. Everything in the world is not as valuable as what I have to give you. But then she shows us why, you know, if we ask her, well, how do you know everything? The answer is because I've been there. Well, where have you been? I've been everywhere. How long? How long? before you were here. Let's see what she says. Adonai, the Lord, created me at the beginning of his work. So here we're into creation now. The first of his acts long ago. At the beginning sounds like Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Notice the first claim that she's making about herself is Genesis 1, 1 is not the beginning. This is like Genesis 0 or something like that. Before anything, before the narrative of creation in the priestly author that we have here, God created me. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. Now, as we read through this very important passage, remember something about creation stories that we learned during the first talk. If you want to understand what a creation story is about, you look at the first sentence. And the first sentence will be structured as a when-then clause. When, uh, you know, when God started doing stuff, this is what things look like. The earth was formless and empty and there was darkness everywhere. It was underwater, all that. And then God said, let there be light. The, between the when and the then, that's the pre-creation moment. Everything she says here is when. So it emphasizes playing on the language of Genesis 1 that I was before all that. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. When he, God, had not yet made the earth and fields or the the world's first bits of soil. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the foundations of the deep, when he assigned a limit to the sea so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, (sighs) I was beside him as a master worker. I was there. I was participating in all that. So this is sort of um, you know when you watch a DVD and you can click on the comment, the director's commentary track. This is sort of the director's commentary on Genesis one, and the person who was really in, who is not in charge, but the person who's really involved in it is the one who's telling how it really was. And if we were to collect all these images, when, 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 when. Not only would they correspond to Genesis 1, they would also correspond to all those, um, those uh, uh, common places that are used in the Psalms to talk about creation. God describing a circle on the waters to control the sea. That's in the Psalms. So this is really evoking the language of all the creation texts we've looked at. I was a master worker, she said, and I was daily God's delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, delighting in the human race doesn't seem like very hard work. She's just basically rejoicing the whole time because it's so cool. So she's really excited, but she's saying, this is why I know everything. And let's step back for a minute. Wisdom is a personification of our capacity to know the truth. What this is saying is that we have the capacity to understand all of this. This is a gift from God. She is a gift from God and she gives human beings the capacity to reason and understand the world simply by living in it, rejoicing in it as she does. In fact, she addresses us as as her children. And now my children listen to me. Happy are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise. Don't neglect it. Happy is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, watching beside my doors. Anyone... Remember, remember the Sermon on the Mount. It was a teaching that Jesus gave. What does the Sermon on the Mount begin with? What's the first words that come out of Jesus's mouth in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew five. Blessed, blessed are they. And if you know your Greek, the actual it, it doesn't say elogetos blessed. He says makarios happy. So when Jesus says happy, 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 are all these people? He's just talking like Lady Wisdom here. He's giving wisdom to his followers. This is what she gives to people, is happiness. Because, she says, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from Adonai, the Lord. But but those who miss me injure themselves. All who hate me love death. Now, that's an interesting perspective on crime and punishment. She doesn't say, uh, those who don't listen to me, I will injure them. Those who hate me, I will kill we're not in the imagery uh, of kingship, right? Often the Old Testament uses the imagery of kingship. God is the king, and what do kings do? They reward good and punish evil. So often you have God described as punishing evil. And uh, you know there are various rationales for why he does that. But ultimately, we have to come down to the realization that since God is love, read First John, since God is, is unbounded love, any punishment we experience is self-inflicted, ultimately. And this is exactly what she's saying. So if if you believe that God is not punishing you, but you are really reaping the fruits of your own, whatever you've been doing that is damaging to yourself, you're basically taking a wisdom approach to things. And actually, as parents, we try to get our children to understand this too, don't we? Why can't you do that? Well, because you're going to hurt yourself. See, I told you. So her approach is really to say, look, grow up. Become mature human beings. Rejoice in the world that, we, that God has created. Understand it as I understand it. Understand it that you have the power to be happy. And when you're not, well, there, are, in fact, there is, in fact, evil in the world. But often, you know, it's self-inflicted. And you need to understand why that is. And you need to learn how to change your ways to avoid that. So she's very practical, like a parent would be. Uh, by the way, did everyone know that Jesus' mother was wisdom too? Uh, I'm not talking about Mary here. Jesus uh, speaks of himself and John the Baptist as wisdom's children. And he doesn't mean wisdom as an abstraction. He means Lady Wisdom. So even Jesus uses the language of Lady Wisdom in the Gospels occasionally. Okay, so that's Proverbs. That's the opening volley of wisdom theology. Wisdom is the, the ability to know how to live a good life is intimately related to knowledge of creation. And what better teacher do we have than Lady Wisdom for that? Let's turn to Jesus Ben-Sirah. Jesus Ben-Sirah was not a priest, he was simply a layman. He was a Jewish teacher who lived in Jerusalem around the second century BC. And his sayings, his wise sayings, were collected by his grandson and translated into Greek later on. And that's how they got into the Christian Bible, the Christian Old Testament. Uh, ben Sira was known in, Ju- in, in Judaism as well. It was highly regarded, never made it into the canon of the Hebrew Bible, but nevertheless was highly regarded by the ancient rabbis as well. Because it's so darn wise, it's so darn great. So if you have a chance, read the, bu- the book of Ben Sira. But anyway, around chapter 24, which is the midpoint, he stops giving his advice and he starts talking to us about Lady Wisdom. And he begins by setting the stage. He says, wisdom praises herself. You know, wisdom has a lot to praise herself about. She is not modest. She is assertive. She is glorying in her own being because of how awesome God created her to be. Wisdom praises herself, tells of her glory in the midst of her people. By the way, the people here aren't us. We'll see in verse two who the people are. In the assembly of the Most High, she opens her mouth. In the presence of his hosts, She tells of her glory. We're talking about the divine throne room here, right? She is one of the divine beings in this scenario, along with the angels and the sons of God and all that. She says, you know, look at how great I am, folks. Um, She praises herself, and God apparently has nothing negative to say about her praise. He encourages her. Then she tells a story about herself. This is why I'm so great. I came forth from the mouth of the Most High, covered the earth like a mist, I dwelt in the highest heavens and my throne was like a, was in a pillar of cloud. Think of these really awesome natural images of grandeur. That's where she is. Alone I compassed the vault of heaven, traverse the depths of the abyss, over waves of the sea, over all the earth, over every people and nation I have held sway. Among all these I sought a resting place, in whose territory should I abide? So... Here we have a question of, I have been everywhere. Where shall I rest? Where shall I dwell? Let's see what the answer was. Well, God gives her the answer. The creator of all things gave me a command. And my creator chose the place for my tent. Well, where else have we heard about a tent? The tabernacle, right? Well, the only person who dwells in a tent is God. And here, wisdom says, I have a tent. Now, we're not in the situation on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter says, let's build three tents. No. She's talking about the same tent that God lives in. We'll, we'll continue on that theme in a moment. God said to me, make your dwelling in Jacob and in Israel receive your inheritance. So just as God chose to dwell in the midst of Israel in the creation narrative, the priestly creation narrative, We have wisdom dwelling in the midst of Jacob by God's command. Are these two events or are these two different perspectives on the same reality? She continues. Before the ages, in the beginning, God created me. For all the ages, I shall not cease to be. In the holy tent, I ministered before God. And so I was established in Zion. The tabernacle built at Mount Sinai is moved to Mount Zion and becomes the place of the temple. That is where she ministers. She is a priestess. She is the high priestess of Israel. And she ministers to God, mediating between Israel and God. So she is located. She's universal, but she's located in Israel. She's located on Mount Zion. Thus, in the beloved city, God gave me a resting place. In Jerusalem was my domain. I took root in an honored people in the portion of the Lord, his heritage. Now Ben Sirah goes on to describe the greatness of Lady Wisdom. A few verses later, he drops the next bomb. All this, says Ben Sirah, all this about Lady Wisdom, Lady Wisdom is nothing less than the book of the covenant of the most high God, the Torah that Moses commanded us as an inheritance for the congregations of Jacob. So Lady Wisdom is nothing less than the Torah. Now here, remember I talked about wisdom literature assumes that you can can discern the world, you can discern yourself without special revelation. Ben Sarah is now saying, yes, that's true, but the content of what wisdom is, the content of Lady Wisdom, what she teaches is nothing different than what Moses taught us in the Torah. That is to say, the ethical content not, not the rituals necessarily, not, not the specific commands for Israel, but the ethical meaning of those, con- of those commandments. The consequences of that covenant are the same consequences that are for all humanity if they are wise, if they follow Lady Wisdom. So this is nothing less than the Book of the Covenant. So Ben Bensir, this is his way of saying faith and reason are compatible. Revelation and reason are more or less saying the same thing. But then he continues... It, namely the Torah, which is also Lady Wisdom, overflows like a river, like the River Pishon. The Torah overflows with wisdom, like the Tigris River at the time of the first fruits. The Torah runs over like the River Euphrates with understanding and like the River Jordan at harvest time. The Torah pours forth instruction like the Nile, like the Gihon at the time of vintage. Why did I highlight four of those river names? Where was the Garden of Eden? It was at the center of the world, but in the Garden of Eden, a river flowed forth from it and divided into four river courses. And those are the four river courses. So what is Ben Sirah saying about the Torah, which is also Lady Wisdom? It and she are the Garden of Eden. They are the wellspring from which the, the world is watered with wisdom. You know, The Torah pours forth instruction, so does Lady Wisdom. They are just as Balaam describes Israel as the Garden of Eden in Numbers 22, so too uh, here, um, uh, Ben Sira describes wisdom in terms of the Garden of Eden, creation language.
0: Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at this same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time
1: for more Living Bread Radio Presents.